0: The her story speaks podcast i'm your host andrea miller after a bit of a hiatus i'm back to share a challenging yet hopeful conversation i had with stephanie tate In her new book, The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace in Our Pain, Stephanie shares her experience with severe chronic illness and how she has discovered that in her deepest pain, Jesus is the most present. Stephanie's story and message is one that has deeply spoken to me the past couple of months. As I told Stephanie, I've been facing my own rock bottom this year, walking through grief from the sudden death of my dad, followed with a cancer diagnosis just two weeks after his funeral. Stephanie's message is key for any of us who are facing both tremendous suffering and a lack of clear hope for the end. As Stephanie says, even if the healing never comes, there is something sacred in the suffering. It's from Holy Rebel that God makes all things new. All right, well, Stephanie, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we've had a nice little pre-show chat, which I appreciate so much, because now I feel like I already know you, and I'm just more excited to have a conversation with you. Oh, I'm a little bit of a talker, so I wonder how that happened. (laughs) Well, I told you that's perfect. One, because I am not as much of a talker, and two, I'm like losing my voice, so if it totally goes away, I'm just going to let you uh, totally take over. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Okay, well, Stephanie, let me give you your professional resume introduction. You are an author, a speaker. A disability advocate, a trauma survivor, and you have a passion for social justice and political advocacy. One of the things I read in your intro to your book, you say, it says, pain is the connecting point and grace that defines your career. And mm. I think that is so well put. And we'll talk about that more today. Can you give me just your, your kind of your unprofessional resume, who you are every day, where you live, all of that? Yep. I am Stephanie. I live in Salem,
1: Oregon with my husband and two boys. Uh, we moved to Salem about five years ago. Before then, I pretty much spent most of my life in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, or going to college in Southern California. So Oregon's a little bit of a different speed for us, but this is definitely home and we love it here. And so most of my time is spent being mom, And then splitting that time with doing a lot of work around disability advocacy as a disabled person, writing about social justice causes, writing and exploring theology, and doing a lot of public speaking or public preaching events at different churches and colleges around the area. Okay. And how old are your boys? They are 10 and almost
0: 7. Okay. 7 this month. Okay, and I told you I have two girls. One of them is ten, but then the other seventeen. So, I I'm living in that ten-year-old world too with you. So
1: yeah, the ten-year-old world. Man, what a set of transitions this year.
0: <laughs> Woo! I mine's almost weird. Al- yeah, mine's almost eleven, and we see the hormones and the emotions and all that uh, fun stuff coming out. So going to middle school next year, I am like, mm, I'm not, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not thinking about that. So I'm just, so not ready. <laughs> no, I'm not even thinking about that like oh <sighs> goodness so
1: I want to show actually tomorrow I'm gonna be doing the career day at my 10 year old school um Fun. because this is my one super brag for the show he okay. literally Begged me to do it Aww. because he thinks the fact that I wrote, in his words, an actual real book, mom, is like the coolest thing yeah. ever that he wants yeah, to like show all his friends. And then he told me, yeah, he said, you're you're basically a celebrity, okay? Like you will be the coolest one out of all of the careers, and I, I win. Of- Okay, I, can be I kind like, of that agree. That was my mom. I
0: kind of agree. So That's pretty cool. I
1: literally rescheduled someone else's podcast interview. That's funny. To do this because if he thinks I'm cool
0: right now, I'm going to take it. Yeah, I would I, agree. I, I, I'm top priority. I would totally agree, but I also agree with him that that is pretty darn cool oh, to write a book and It doesn't feel
1: like that on this end. It's not oh, yeah. a very glamorous career choice the way people imagine it to be.
0: Well, as I shared with you before we started recording, your your book, The View from Rock Bottom, has been, I'd say, the most impactful thing that I've read this last month. I shared last week for the first time when I talked to Sheila, I was just got really honest and t- shared about the death of my father, January 5th, unexpected, out of nowhere. And I did not want to read any more feel-good books. I, I mean, I was just pretty, you know, grief is a weird thing that I haven't walked through before, and your book, I had actually emailed you before that happened, because you were on my list for 2020 of who I wanted to come on the podcast, and I hadn't read your book yet, but it was on my list, and I knew I wanted you on the show, and you got back to me after the death of my dad, and I had started reading your book, and I just was like, wow, um, yeah, your book is speaking to me, and I, you're one of the few people I want to talk to right now. Mm-hmm. So I just I can't thank you enough for writing it and your honesty and your vulnerability and we'll dig into your story and what it what you were honest and vulnerable about, but I just want to tell you how impactful it has been for me.
1: Can I just use this to say we don't always get to hear these stories as authors? We certainly get to hear the people that show up in our inbox and tell us the millions of reasons that we're heathens and heretics Mm -hmm. and our theology is wrong or why we shouldn't have written our book or why it's lame or whatever. It's a lot harder and I have been really blessed that I do have a lot of people that have taken the time to put an email right to me in my inbox and say, thank you for sharing pieces of your pain story. Can I can I share these pieces of mine back with you? Mm-hmm. And there's something really sacred, and I always use this word very lightly, but pastoral. In, in that relationship, in being asked to hold such sacred pieces of someone's pain. And I, I don't think I will ever get used to that part of doing this work. I say that t- to sort of tell the listeners... If you are impacted by a book that you read, a blog post that you read, a person who, you know, is a social media figure and something that they said, you may assume that we sort of have this celebrity life in which we just think we're amazing and we're doing... I promise you for 99% of us, we are back here behind our screens going, am I making it worse? Am I making sense to anybody? And because like truth cards out, we're making like no money. (laughs) You can start to wonder, is this just some sort of weird glorified hobby? Like, am I just sort of full of myself thinking that i have anything to offer the world am i just trying to be famous by saying my opinions on the internet am i basically just right. a narcissist professionally so when somebody takes the time to reach out and send an email it doesn't even have to be long that just says i read whatever it is you were in fact you were affected by and this is what it meant to me i literally save in a special folder on my computer screenshots or copies of every one of those messages. And there are times when I have thought so seriously about quitting because I cannot communicate enough how hard this work is and how much it takes from you. And I have gone through that file and been reminded that that's what I do this for. So Mm -hmm. if you have that person who affected you, like just take that two minutes to shoot them an email. And I know sometimes it feels weird. And I know sometimes we tell ourselves, well, like, oh, they're a big celebrity. They don't know me. You know,
0: I, that they won't care what I have to. We, we care. Trust me. Please. That is so good to know. Because I'm, I'm guilty of before this podcast, I never did that. You know, yes, I just. Send that message. Okay. Write that Amazon review. Like,
1: yes. these are things that don't seem like a big deal, until you're sitting over here on our end and they literally make or break our career or make or break our spirit in a way yeah. that allows us to continue to do the work and feel like it's meaningful,
0: It allows us to stay faithful, to stay the course. Mm-hmm. That's good to know, Stephanie. Thank you for making that point. And I'll just, I'll continue then to tell you this morning, my mom is staying with us for a while. The, mm-hmm. Obviously, she's a widow now. She started reading your book, and mm. she's reading it all morning. And I, I told her you're who I was talking to today, and she's like, "That book is oh. so good. That good I mean, she was just going on at how much it's speaking to her." because it's really hard when you're hurting and suffering to find, to find books like yours. And oh, I'm gonna start crying. But then the other second part of why your book speaks to me. So we originally had this interview mm-hmm. scheduled for a week. I have a cancer diagnosis of melanoma. I think I'm in my own rock bottom right now, Stephanie. And yeah. your book was already speaking to me. And then wow, it just took it to another level because I feel like I'm like right there with you in this rock bottom world and your message is not a feel-good one that we get all the time or it's not a feel-good one in a sense of everything's going to work out, tie up in a pretty bow. So that's what we're going to talk about today and we're going to, you gave me permission to share some about my story as we talk about yours and I appreciate that and we're just going to be real and honest about pain and suffering and how God meets us there. So let's go ahead and let's start with your story about where your pain and suffering started, really. When you were about 16, you started having health issues. So can you start start there and just tell us kind of what life was doing to you then? Yeah.
1: So I, I grew up in a pretty traditional, conservative, evangelical upbringing. Um, we were in a exceptionally conservative wing of the Baptist church, not the Southern Baptists, like even further right, we split off. They weren't conservative enough for us. Okay. So that really shaped a lot of my upbringing. Um, We spent our time predominantly at church-related functions with other church-related kids, at Christian schools with kids that went to our church. I wasn't really outside of that community in, in any context much. With one notable exception, with dance. I fell in love with ballet at the age of three, Mm -hmm. when most kids decide that ballet is amazing. But for me, it stuck. Like, this was it. I knew I was head over heels in love. This was going to be my life. And I dedicated a lot of time to dance and In fairness, my parents put me in all kinds of activities, so I did lots of other hobbies, but nothing held the passion and the place and the purpose for me that dance did. Mm. And so by the time I got to high school, I was pretty sure that dance wasn't just a hobby. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to college and study dance. I wanted to join a company. Truthfully, that's not like a longevity sort of career goal. You will be done with that, even if you make the top top levels of dance and you're a principal in a company like you're pretty much done by the time you're 35 or 40 at most so then you know i would already had it planned out at that point i was going to teach dance and, and open a ballet school and like this was my life because of the christian culture i was coming up in by the time i got to high school it had also taken on this sort of spiritualized element of like This was a calling. This was a Mm -hmm. purpose. I could serve the Lord in dance. I could do worship dance. I could use dance to point people towards ideas about Him. And that was my calling. I helped take a tiny, tiny little brand new dance program at my school and turn it into something that was flourishing where I was sort of the poster child that everybody knew for Christian dance. If you had asked anyone in my class that year, they would have said, yep, she's going to be a dancer. And then all of a sudden, I started getting injured all the time. I was exhausted constantly. And when I say exhausted, I mean I could sleep 10, 11, 12, even 13 hours a night and wake up feeling like I just couldn't get myself out of bed. I was getting injured not only while dancing, which is somewhat common, but they were just definitely increasing. But other times like I'm just walking down my stairs and oh my gosh my knee just gave out out of nowhere and it's completely out of place what what just happened bruising all over my body that I couldn't explain and in school itself, I went from being exceptionally bright, not to brag, but I was Mensa. Woohoo! hoo Hi, Q. Wow. I did not know this, Stephanie. Well, that's because <laughs> now I can barely string English words yeah, together yeah. in a sentence or do basic math. And that's what started to happen is I couldn't comprehend certain material. And when I could comprehend it, I would forget it very easily. Like, it's, it's like it wouldn't stick. Wow. And even when I did remember and try to comprehend and could comprehend it i'd try to articulate it and it was like my words weren't there i couldn't access mm-hmm. them it was like they were in some locked portion of my brain that just wouldn't connect to my mouth so, so what was the di- were you plummeted. getting a
0: diagnosis or what was no it? Okay. that
1: was the worst part is at the time they basically just said well she's you know a teenager and she's tired all the time that just probably sounds like depression like of course she doesn't want to get up and go to class uh, have you tried prozac so it took a long time to get them to listen to me until other, you know other physical symptoms started joining then that were very physical that they couldn't ignore. Eventually epilepsy was sort of the big one that had them go, "Okay, seizures are a thing that you can't like just fake. We see those on the monitor. That's, That's real." Right. And so I kind of had two paths going with Dr. at one time. On the one side, there was this constant thread of it's probably all in your head. It's probably just depression, or maybe you really like attention and you're kind of making yourself mm-hmm. sick. It's sort of hysteria, if you will. Mm-hmm. On the other side was, well, now we have symptoms that we can't deny because they show up on tests, but we're just gonna sort of like a dartboard, just throw up explanations for these symptoms individually. So like you have epilepsy and then it was, maybe you have lupus and then that was wrong. Maybe you have MS, so we'll take that one back down. Okay, now you have really advanced rheumatoid arthritis. So now you've got epilepsy and arthritis up there but they're probably unrelated they're just two different darts and there they are. And this sort of progressed. You have fibromyalgia, you have chronic fatigue, or it's all in your head and both of these are going on but nobody was suggesting that
0: there was one clear thing wrong with me. Right. And so what do you remember like at the time the church? You were involved with the church. How mm-hmm. what kind of messages were you getting? From the church and well, and some of it, and all of that
1: was more the messages I was putting on myself because of the ways I had been raised. When okay, I first yeah. got sick and I first had to leave dance, I definitely felt this responsibility. To be, I make this joke a lot, but I thought I had to be the walking embodiment of positive, encouraging love, 24 7. You know, <laughs> like it's just positive, encouraging Stephanie all day long. Mm-hmm. No matter what time you tune in, it's three in the morning and we are upbeat, y'all. Like, yeah. I thought that's how I had to be to show that I had enough faith. And so the only two options I could possibly conceive of making sense were either, A, I was going to get some kind of miraculous healing story, and that was going to prove to everybody God was faithful, or he was going to bring something into my life that was so good and so big and so obviously connecting the dots that I would be able to go, see, God took away dance, but so he could bring me this opportunity. Right. And it had to be one of those two things. So I was constantly on the lookout for them, but,
0: uh, it was 15 years oh, of waiting goodness. for a diagnosis and struggling and health getting worse years. and worse. Yep. How did you transform during that time of just having to be upbeat, Stephanie, Love, to where, I mean, that was a process to realizing you didn't have to be that.
1: So, for unrelated reasons, actually, uh, I am in therapy. I'm in therapy for post traumatic stress disorder, or in okay. my case, for complex post traumatic stress disorder from trauma that happened in early, early childhood. And one of the unique intersections here is. Part, a big component of getting that kind of therapy is learning how to reconnect to your body. Because the way that you cope with therapy is sort of to, or, uh, trauma is to divide yourself up into a lot of sort of fragmented pieces okay. and compartmentalize and not be this fully embodied whole person. You disassociate a lot. And so the overlap has been very interesting for me now in looking back at my chronic illness journey, because I think I did the same thing to that trauma in that context in which I sort of fragmented into two halves of a person. I had this part of me that was determined to keep faith no matter what. And in a way that felt like if I ever express a doubt or, or even the something that looks like a doubt, then maybe I won't get healed because, you know, Mm -hmm. I I won't have had enough faith. I need everybody to see that God's going to do a big thing. And I think part of me was sort of manipulatively feeling like if I can get everyone looking, well, now God has to do the big thing. And then there was this other half of me that felt like, okay, but all of this flies in the face. Everything I've ever been taught to believe being a person of faith would look like, or living a good, obedient life would look like, so is this all just crap? Like, is all of it meaningless? And I was, I think, I hear people describe it a lot as like swinging between these two sides. I was 100% these two sides at the same time. I was just this fragmented disjointed person that couldn't make sense of why God would do this to me and what that meant for me, right? Like, did I, did I, do I deserve this? Am I some sort of sinner that needs to get her act together somewhere and I'm just not seeing it? Or is God just not just and not faithful or is he faithful, but just not to me? I'm just not worth it.
0: And that's what so much of your book dives into. We're going to get more into that specifically because I'm walking (laughs) through a lot of that myself right now. Now. Um, mm. So I want to dive deeper into that. But I, let's go back before we do that. And like you said, it took 15 years for you to get the diagnosis, which tell us what I know, but tell us what it ended up being. And so it turned out I had undiagnosed Lyme disease this entire mm. time, which
1: a lot of people who are unfamiliar think of Lyme disease as like, oh, you get the little bullseye rash and then they give yeah. you the antibiotics for two weeks and you're better. If they catch it, like right when you yeah. get bitten, 30 days or so of antibiotics can be enough to, that's it. But once it progresses past that initial stage unnoticed, it is not really the same thing you are dealing with. Mm-hmm. This is a bacteria, interior infection that is literally shaped like tiny little corkscrews and burrs into your tissue. So I have heart damage because of the fact that I have Lyme carditis, meaning I have significant Lyme infection that happened around my heart. I have serious neurological problems because that bacteria basically made Swiss cheese of sections of my brain. Oh my gosh. You know, I have arthritis. I have muscular weakness and issues. There's, all, I have neuropathy, meaning like I can't really feel things in my hands anymore. I can feel the weight, but I don't actually feel the sensation of like my fingers touching things very well. Um, there's all kinds of symptoms like that that may not, be what you hear when you hear Lyme disease, because if you catch it early enough,
0: you can avoid all that stuff. But once you let it run
1: rampant in your system, there's no part of your body that it is not going to affect.
0: Yeah. And I had no idea until reading your story because I thought, well, She's going to have more than Lyme disease, like, but then read, like you were just saying and me reading more about Lyme disease. I had no idea. So for it running 15 years rampant in your body, I mean, it was, it was destroying it. And now you live yeah. daily with pain and the repercussions of it. And some days it's hard for you to get out of bed. It's hard for you to articulate. I mean, it is a life of pain.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's accurate. I, I will be permanently disabled for the rest of my life mm-hmm. on some level. I have good days. And I have bad days where I'm flaring really bad. And those yeah. can fluctuate wildly. There are days you could see me in public and not have any idea that, that I'm disabled. Mm-hmm. And there are other days where you absolutely can't miss it. There's no way you don't know that something's happening. I'm spasming. I'm, I have a tremor. Oh, you know, stunning. I'm using a wheelchair that day right. or my cane. Like it, there are times anybody could look at me and say, yeah, she's, she's disabled. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to read a couple lines. I mean, so much of your book spoke to me. I, I'm going to send you a picture because I think I have every other page, a tab, and a highlight. Like, I don't think I've ever marked up a book more. I would love to see that picture. Uh, it's, it's kind of sad, but... When your preface, you say, When you commit to exploring the depths of God's presence and suffering, you have to be fully prepared for Him to faithfully provide the source material you need. He has walked me through more pain than I ever thought possible to bear, and if I had known the details of his plan from the start, I likely would have pleaded for him to pass me over for this calling. Oh, and I'm tearing up reading that because that's all I've thought this last month is, <sighs> I don't care what the purpose of this is. I don't care. I, I don't want to be chosen for any of this. Like I, I want to be passed over. And I think that's why I needed to hear so many of your words because I'm not there where you're at. Like you, you, you can see some of that joy. I'm just like in it where I feel like, no, there's no reason for death. There's no reason for this camp. There's no reason. And I want to be out of it. Mm -hmm. But your book gives such encouragement of there, there is a reason and how God meets us there. And you open your book talking about meeting God on the bathroom floor. Mm -hmm. So you've had more pain in your life than just the Lyme disease as if that wouldn't be enough. But you share about the really hard times of miscarriages, financial issues, like you've had a lot. So can you talk about that experience of meeting God on the bathroom floor? And then I want to really dive into some of a lot of the things you talk about with meeting God in the pain.
1: So it's always difficult to figure out how to start a book, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you're coming from more short form writing into something big like this. And my big goal in figuring out how to write theology, as someone who's not, you know, a seminary trained, I'm not Tim Keller writing, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, you know, with a right. bibliography the size of the book. Like, this is different. How do you set the stage and sort of offer a foundation for Who is this person, and where is she even coming from? What, how how should I interact with this material? And so I felt like one of the best places to start was the book is not a memoir, but the first chapter pretty much is. Yeah, it's it's sort of a pullout of a memoir, and you know the reality is there's just too much that's happened here to talk about all of it. So I kind of honed in on one particular period in our life where a lot of different areas of suffering suddenly intersected, came together, and happened at the same time. And I'd made that choice very deliberately because I think we have this idea of sort of bad things might happen to us, but sort of the default state is that we have sort of a normal quality of life, right? You're not going to be living under a bridge as a homeless person or like you you have a basic house and a job. And sure, like somebody might get cancer or somebody might lose a job, but that'll be this little bubble that happens and then you'll solve it and you'll go back to your normal life. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to worry about another one of those bubbles hitting until you're already back in that safe, normal life zone. Guilty. I am guilty of believing that. Uh Uh-huh. I was too. And then a time hit where it was like, Seriously, how many more things can go wrong for one person right now, right? And the highlight of the story I tell in the first chapter is it starts very hopeful, that chapter. It is not, let me tell you a list of 80,000 things that went wrong. It is, we had finally gotten Over that cycle of all the struggle that we had had in our life and God opened a door and so clearly said faithfully follow me move to another state so that you can finally come into a season of rest and abundance and whatever that we thought we Mm -hmm. heard and we got there and we lost our job we almost lost that brand new house we were unemployed for 3 months a whole series of really weird things went on in the background and then on top of it all prize you're pregnant when you didn't plan that it's like wow this is the worst timing for that but i worked my little attitude into gear and i got on board with it and i fell in love with that pregnancy and I decided, you know what? I bet this is going to be the thing, right? Everybody will go, that whole story was terrible, but we all know it was so this little baby hope would be born and it would, you know, be God's yeah. hope in the storm. And so I went to the first appointment and found out, surprise, uh, your pregnancy's not viral, not mm-hmm. viable, which was the seventh time that we lost a child. And I came home. I do not remember getting home. Like trauma is a a beast. There are so many chunks of that day that are a blur or just completely missing from my brain. And I have not been able to recover. But the next solidly clear memory I have is laying on the bathroom floor in my room on really old-fashioned linoleum. Because when you cry on linoleum your face basically <laughs> adheres like you have like rubber cement tears or something uh, and you have to kind of peel yourself off the floor. And that image will always stick with me. sort of that st- sticky floor face, ugly mascara everywhere, literally bleeding through my PJ pants later in the week. Mm. It's funny how my brain kind of blurs those two together. Those were really actually two different times being on the floor because I didn't start bleeding through my PJ pants till I had to have an unfortunate, I had to have a DNC procedure to actually convince my So again, there's trauma brain for you, Mm. right? Like I've kind of blurred those two nights together Mm -hmm. but it was that bathroom floor experience of realizing I could not hold the those two disjointed parts of myself that we talked about earlier anymore. It was literally ripping me in half. And sometimes I think it takes a moment of real big tragedy. And I had had plenty of moments of tragedy, but because of some of the unique sort of safeguards my brain had put up as a person who experienced early childhood trauma, I wasn't actually really dealing with any of those So for me, it took the intersection of a lot of tragedy and trauma all at once for me to
0: finally hit the level I needed to break down. And you say that God has revealed himself more to you in your deepest pain than any other experience that you've had on the earth. And right now I'm not there. So can you talk about that? Because like you just said, it took the intersection of all these things to get you there. Yeah. But yet God has revealed himself more to you in that than any other, all the happy experiences that you've had on this earth. So this is
1: really, really careful because sometimes when we come out of certain toxic constructs and we haven't really figured out all of the details of what it was that made that theology toxic, Mm -hmm. we inevitably carry some of those same structures and baggage with us in the next thing that we create, right? Mm -hmm. So we feel better because we think, well, no, I'm doing this a new way. I don't believe that anymore. This is so much better without realizing how much it's the same stuff under a different name. So what I have to be careful about here is just as much as I reject obvious prosperity gospel theology that is, you know, as long as you obey God, everything's going to go great. If you have enough faith, you're going to get healed. You can pray your way out of, you know, the sad and the bad, whatever. Absolutely straight up reject that. But what I want to be careful that I don't do— is that I create an equally false construct on the other side where I'm telling people, no, pain is good, yeah. and here's why, and here's the reason for pain, or even more, that God makes bad things happen to you to teach you these things, or the, because as much as this is a very nuanced conversation, and it can be difficult to have conversations like these, that is equally dangerous and equally false.
0: Yeah. And you're you're very honest with your book about the tension in so many of these areas of pain and joy and blessings and pain. I mean, you're very honest about that. I would
1: never want to sound like I'm encouraging you or any of your listeners to – what I don't want them to hear from this is because I found these incredible gifts inside of my deepest pains – that i am saying god sent me lyme disease and he killed my babies because that would be good for my relationship with him because straight up that's gross we're not going there and so as a result oftentimes people come to me and they ask something like like how can i get to where to where you're at they say some version of you know I'm not there. Everything sucks, and it all sucks, and I don't know what to do with that. Kind of like I just said to you. Really? I mean, that's where I'm at. Teach me how to get to the place where it all makes sense again. Yeah. I'm going to lovingly let you know that I can't give you that. Like, Mm -hmm. I will never be able to give you a moment where you look back and you say, oh, that's why that had to happen or worse. I'm so glad that happened in that way because, and I think that's sort of the number one goal I have for people that get all the way through the book is to sort of reject that overall construct that having purpose in our pain means getting the reasons for it. Those are two different things. And again, this is so nuanced. They sound similar. They're really not though.
0: And that's a really hard, like I remember reading that there's a portion in your book. You talk about that like several times because I'm like, okay, she says she's not saying this. So what is she saying? And it's really hard to grasp because we like to say God does these things for a reason. I think there's so many myths in this white American evangelical culture that we try to slap on to the pain and suffering. And you're really good about going into these myths. And one of them that you talked about was the prosperity gospel So let's dive into, if you don't mind, let's dive into some of these things, the labels that people try to put on, like, okay, why do these bad things happen? Or why do all good things happen? So you brought up the prosperity gospel, and I think Mm -hmm. that's easy to identify when we're looking at name it and claim it or the financial blessings. but I think it's a lot. There's more to it than that. We apply it more than I think we realize. So do you want to dive in and talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, this one's kind of my heart song right now, one of my primary goals in the book, and the The job I felt like I had on the table before we could get into any of the building a better theology of suffering was recognizing we all have a theology of suffering already, whether we've actually intentionally thought about it or not, it's there. Mm -hmm. And usually, whether we recognize it or not, it's been absolutely influenced, if not outright formed by the prosperity gospel. People push back a lot when I introduce this idea because most mainstream evangelical churches and Christians have been well-trained to hear those two words, prosperity, gospel, and go, yeah, oh, no, we don't believe that here. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. We're not into that Joel Osteen or Pray the right. or any of that stuff. Right, but because it has
0: become sort of a bad word, so we want to say, no, we're, we don't believe that. And but it's we rightfully, you know, a bad word. Right.
1: But those are very very far extreme examples of an overall belief system that is absolutely prevalent in all of white evangelical theology. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the hardest thing to tackle up front in my book. I was legit terrified that I have probably lost a number of readers as soon as they get through chapter two and decide, this is not for me, because in order to go any further, you really have to accept the construct that any theology that views God in transactional terms is prosperity Theology—it's a lot broader than people want to admit. When you think, as long as I obey God, there are certain things I'm promised here on Earth as a result. That's still under the umbrella of prosperity theology. When you think, if I raise my kids a certain way, they won't—you know—they won't go astray. That's prosperity. Right. When you think, or in tragedy, when you say something like. Wow, I can't believe that happened to a person like him. He doesn't he didn't deserve that. Like, wow, he was such a good, faithful servant. I'm just in shock that something like this could happen to a family like that. I mean, that absolutely exposes
0: the worst of our prosperity thinking. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that really hit me when you said that, because I think I've been guilty. I know I've been guilty of both of those thoughts and not realizing I'm buying into the prosperity gospel with that. And I think that's just such, I mean, tell me what you think the day I know, but there's a danger in that because some people can think, no, there's not really if that's what they want to believe. But there is a danger in that. Oh, no, there's there's a large swath of people that even if they can agree with me there,
1: will go on to say, but this is sort of a niche issue. Like, we don't mm-hmm. really have to get too invested in it. Because, you know, my Aunt Susie, she just loves, you know, these whoever prosperity things. It just makes her feel good. And she's not hurting anybody. So, right. you know, just let her have it. There's bigger things we should focus on. Right. The issue is... And this is where I'm going to really risk some fun emails in my inbox.
0: Okay. Are you sure Uh, you want to go here? You don't have to. I go here all the
1: time. Welcome to Stephanie, (laughs) y'all. Okay. I'm disabled, right? So Mm -hmm. this is a very lived experience issue for me, which is why I go here all the time. Because for many people who are white and abled, you have the privilege and ability to turn off politics to a certain extent and say, I can choose to engage at appropriate levels, you know, when it's appropriate or when I need to, um, because I don't like to get too invested in politics. That's really dirty business. And Christians should really just try to stay above the fray. Well, when you are a disabled Christian- (laughs) And in my case, a disabled Christian who, let's see, my parents and my husband are all non-citizen immigrants. So that's a lot of fun to navigate. You live at an intersection that looks a little different because for me, the reason I'm so passionate about this theology of suffering and getting it right and understanding our hidden prosperity gospel belief. As I look around at so much of what's happening in the political environment right now and with people shaking their heads saying, I just don't know how we got here. It all seems so extreme and polarized and Mm -hmm. it, it makes no sense. And I will level with you, none of this is shocking to me. Harrowing, like uh, upset with it, disturbed, you bet, but shocking? I can't honestly say that I've been truly shocked by a whole lot yet because this is the logical end conclusion of prosperity thinking. If I believe that all the good things that I have in my life are because I earned them, that I'm financially secure because I did Dave Ramsey and I made smart choices and I didn't spend more than my income. Right. If I believe that I have good health because I used essential oils and got all the chemicals out of my house and I ate the right diet and didn't feed my kids junk, anytime we do that, whether we want to admit it or not, we are also saying the reverse. We are saying, and those people over there, well – Maybe they struggle with those health issues because they didn't use essential oils and throw out all the chemicals. And that's a hard that's a hard pill to swallow financial choices.
0: That's so hard to swallow because I'm guilty of this last week saying, I don't understand why this has happened to me. I eat healthy, I exercise, not overweight. Like, why would I get cancer? But you're right. When that
1: shift happens for us, right? Like when tragedy hits, we have sort of a unique opportunity to see that disconnect Mm -hmm. in ourselves. But what's so much harder for people and what's going to be necessary if the church is gonna move forward in any kind of meaningful way is it can't always take a personal tragedy for us to see the disconnect, right? We need to learn how to see what our neighbor needs and what our neighbor's suffering through And not have to personally experience it in order for us to go, oh, okay, maybe there are times
0: that you didn't earn the bad things that are happening to you. Does that make sense? And, yeah, it makes total sense. And I yeah. wish I didn't have to be in it to see it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not uh, exempting myself from that. I mean, I wrote this book
1: because I had to go through this journey as a very conservative white evangelical with all that upbringing entailed in realizing I was doing these things. This is not me like, hi, I'm disabled. So I'm exempt from this conversation and I'm telling all you people what to do. The book really was me trying to own my own complicity in some of these toxic structures. Yeah. And then recognizing now as a person who's being harmed by those structures, What can we do to do this differently? Because it's not enough for me to just get out there and say, you guys have stopped. You got to stop doing this stuff. Right. If I'm not also saying, here's what a healthy and more robust theology of suffering and a more healthy and robust politic of
0: neighbor love could look like. Yeah, and I know going along with that, one of the things that I'm grappling with, too, that you talk about is that, you know, we think wellness and prosperity are gifts from God, who only wants to see us healthy and mm-hmm. flourishing. But you state living with pain, living without pain is not biblical. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks, too, because I, again, have gone and gone with this of like, no, God wants us healthy, flourishing. That's our gift. And if we're looking at that, that's, that's not necessarily accurate either.
1: Well, and again, this is so complex, right? It is so complex. Because yes. sometimes I say things like that, and if people haven't read the full context, right, what you're right here is God sends your kid cancer sometimes. Like that, that's, we're not, that's not at all what I'm saying. It's nuanced, but the idea is this that for some reason, in modern white evangelical spaces especially, we have this underlying idea of God wants you physically well. And Mm -hmm. in and of itself, that's not entirely inaccurate, right? If we were to step back outside the fall, outside all of it, his intention has always been good things for his children. He doesn't want anybody sick. That's true. The problem is when we start to sort of – flesh out the details of what that looks like here on earth. We don't have that information necessarily in the Bible. We just sort of fill in our assumption of what that's going to look like. And so we start to think things like, well, God is going to need you to be healthy so that you can go out and, you know, do things for the kingdom kind of a yes. thing. Right. So like, obviously he is going to make you well so that you can serve him. And there's two problems there. One it's wildly ableist, first of all, because it assumes that for people like me who are chronically ill and lifelong disabled, that we're less capable of serving God. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem right up on the front to deal with. But second, it assumes that there's sort of a level of intervention that we're guaranteed on this earth in this lifetime for no other reason that I've been able to sort of suss out other than, well, I obeyed God and I did what he wanted, so he's going to do this stuff for me while I'm here. Yeah. And unfortunately, we live in a broken world. It is true that he doesn't want any of us in pain. I don't for two seconds think that he wanted any of those seven children of mine to die. I don't. But- the idea that that somehow means he has to come down and fix it for me because I'm a worthy Christian, that's when we start to have a problem.
0: Yeah. And that ties into, you go into, I mean, you go into so many Bible verses, which is another reason I love your book, because you're not just throwing out what you think. You're throwing out your, what the Bible says. And you go into Romans eight twenty-eight. Which I love and I think ties into that because we have totally misconstrued the Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. And I think we think that is it's all gonna tie up in a neat bow. Mm-hmm. That God will use it and tie it up in a bow. And again, I'm guilty of that because yeah, I think no. I shared a little bit with you in the email and I've shared with my audience that I've gone through a, having a husband with that was an alcoholic. I've had an eating disorder. Our marriage is we've almost been on bankruptcy, but all of these things tied up in nice little bows. They all did. I stuck with it. I prayed. Our marriage is great. All of it. And that I've been guilty of preaching that. I believed it and I prayed it and teaching women's groups that. And for the first time in my life, I'm like, oh, my dad's not coming back. And right. I don't know what the prognosis is. I don't know what's going to happen with the cancer. And it's shaken my world, but you're speaking into really what this theology of suffering is and what what God means that what these verses mean so talk about about that a little bit with Romans 8 28 and how we've misconstrued that
1: so many of the concepts in this book were really deeply nuanced like I cannot tell you how many emails <laughs> went between me and my editor where I basically just said have I blown way past nuanced into just totally convoluted and nobody's gonna have a clue what I'm trying to say here because this stuff is complicated. It is so uh, It's very not black and white. And that really is the theme of all of this, right? That we're so trained to look for black and white answers, easy compartmentalized chunks, a pretty bow on the end. And none of this stuff works that way. Grief, yeah. suffering, pain, it's messy. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of why I wanted to dive into that uh, talking about Romans and that section was sort of we take that verse about him working all things together for good, and we tend to apply a very human lens to it in that we read that as a guarantee that no matter what bad thing happens to us, uh, it's somehow going to make sense on the other side of it, right? Like that God will – sort of inserted in the chunk. And once you get past it, as long as you can hold on with enough faith, you'll look at it and go, oh, that's why God did that thing. I'm so glad he killed my seven babies because then I went to Africa and I met seven orphans and like, we're looking for those stories. It takes a lot to step back and read some of these verses in the larger context of what scripture is saying about suffering as a whole because I don't read that verse that way. I don't read that as he's promising me answers for the why of everything. For me, it boils down to, and I think I touched briefly too in the last chapter on, um, I have a a tattoo on my wrists, my one tattoo, that says immeasurably more, taken from Ephesians 3.20, similar reasons, because there's another verse, it says to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power. And prosperity thinking co-ops that and decides it's a verse that says, hey, you know, you're asking for a hundred and he wants to give you a thousand. That's mm. not what I get out of this verse. What I get out of this verse, right, is the idea that immeasurably more in our family, I'm going to cry now, Who mm. has kind of become a funny little catchphrase that we use when things are going real crappy. Mm. So there was a point in our unemployment where we were, I mean, we were going to lose our brand new house. We were about to lose everything. And my husband had done four or five interviews in a process with a company that would have been perfect. And we got to the very last stage and all of a sudden they sent us a form letter that said they went with somebody else
0: Mm.
1: and you're crushed, right? And we looked at each other and we looked at this brand new at the time tattoo on my wrist and we said, you know what? this is just an immeasurably more thing and what we meant was we are so human and so small right that we cannot even imagine to ask for the things that are god's perfect best for us Mm -hmm. and so sometimes god's perfect best is gonna look a lot like i am not okay with this crap this is not what i asked for and so it 's hard when people approach romans eight twenty eight from this perspective of he works all things together for good, but yes, he does that 's one hundred percent true in an internal perspective. All he wants is our good. he is not up there sending your kids cancer that 's not the God I serve. But what that verse does not say and does not mean is so he's going to actively intervene in the lives of the worthiest, most faithful, most obedient Christians so that each individual circumstance works out in the terms that we are comfortable with. Right. Right. Because his perfect best, I mean— We serve a huge, multifaceted God that exists outside of time and space and was not created by man. And that gives me great comfort. And that's why when I don't understand things now, when things are full of mystery and nuance and complexity, and I feel out of my depth, that's the kind of thing that my old evangelical upbringing would leave me going that's not okay. Then you need to learn the answers because we know God is real because of this and this and this and blacks and whites and absolute truths. And now when there are areas where I go, I don't understand God. This does not make sense to me. That is so reassuring to me that I absolutely must have a God who wasn't designed by human minds. Because, man, we would have made something up that makes way more sense
0: than this, right? Yes, absolutely. And going along those lines, and one of the things that really struck me as I was finishing your book this morning is you say God doesn't send our pain, but he can redeem it. Hmm. So if we're looking at it through that, that lens of God isn't sending her pain, how we can take these deep hurts Hmm. into our greatest callings. And that struck me probably more than anything. I want to talk about joy because you talk a lot about that too, but that (laughs) I'm struggling with the joy part right now, but this deepest hurts into our greatest callings really struck me and made me think, okay, God, if this is where I'm at, what do I, what do you want me to do with this? Your, your life, your book is such an example of that. And is that has that been some I mean I'm sure that has to be a lot of your motivation for it
1: it, it really is I actually had wanted there's a whole chapter kind of dedicated to that idea mm-hmm. right the seventh chapter cover your mirrors I talk about Jewish mourning practices around grief and how we can learn connect more to each other and also to push ourselves out into purpose in our own communities inside of our pain and I had actually had a point in that chapter where I actually had wanted to quote some lyrics from my friend, Nicole And Long story short, Nicole was all in. Her label was not as cool with that. So they're not in the book. But part of what has informed my theology in this area so much is Nicole's song, The Sound of Surviving. Oh my gosh. And there's a section where, like, here's where I got to shout out my girl, Nicole. Nicole is not just a brilliant singer. She has some really complex theology in those lyrics. Love Nicole. She was on the guest. Really nuanced, complex concepts that we struggle with theologically, that somehow she can get into four sentences instead of me having to write, you know, an eight chapter book. One of the ways she did that was in the Sound of Surviving, she wrote a line about these pieces, the one that left me the ones that left me bleeding, Mm. intended for my pain became the gifts you gave. Mm. And I gathered those pieces into a mountain. My freedom is in view. I'm stronger than I knew. I'm going to keep on climbing, basically. Oh, and this hill is not the one I die on, so I'm going to keep on climbing, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that this beautiful visual picture of the things intended for our harm being repurposed for our good... And for me, I found that really echoed the sentiments of prophecy in Isaiah, where they talk about what the kingdom of God come again is going to look like. And one of the phrases that comes up and is commonly quoted is this idea of swords into plowshares. That really echoed again for me this idea of things that were intended for our harm that can be repurposed and retooled into things That we use to cultivate growth, that we use to build God's kingdom and bring about good, positive new things instead of destruction and bringing things down. And so a big part for me in learning to live with pain has been seeking out those ways that if I let it, pain can become the greatest springboard into my deepest passion and my greatest calling. Mm -hmm. And that is not the same as what I like to call distractivism, right? Like it's not, I'm so lonely or I'm so sad or things are going wrong in my life. So I'm just going to go find a cause and volunteer for it all the time. That's not the same thing. This is specifically diving into our own pain. When we are ready when we are comfortable, because I am not saying take your deepest trauma and just blast it on display and see what happens. But when we come to a place where we're ready asking, okay, if there was somebody else who's going through what I've been through, right? If I was me, in my case, when I wrote this book, a lot of it was, if I was me five years ago, (laughs) what was the book that I needed and couldn't find? Mm. What was the message that I just didn't feel like anybody was saying? Why did I feel so alone in this while I tried to to sort it out? And what could I write that could become a sword into a plowshare where I could take the things that caused me so much pain that, again, I am not saying God sent me those swords, right? And yet somehow turned them into a tool to build his
0: kingdom, and to help other people walking in similar pain. And you've done it so perfectly. And something you just said struck me was, you know, what the book that that you would have wanted five years ago when you felt so alone. And that's so how I felt this last month. So alone in the grief and the Mm -hmm. pain and the suffering. And I It's so hard to understand why do we feel that way when we all experience pain and suffering in this world and we're believers and I have friends trying to be there for me, but I feel like nobody can relate and it's just, it's a weird place to be and friends try to say well-meaning things Hmm. and it's a, I don't know. So how have you, how have you dealt with that time of just feeling like, do you still feel like you're alone in it or has that been a process to not feel that way? Um, it's complicated. Yeah, I know. This is all very complicated. There are a lot of areas that I do still
1: feel very alone. Yeah. Um... I'm not going to try and and hide or downplay that. Um, This is not like, and now I wrote a book and I'm famous and I've arrived. Like that's not how this works. Being chronically ill and disabled is generally a very lonely experience because of structural ableism. Like the world is just not set up to be welcoming and inclusive for bodies like mine. And that's one of those things where it's important for me to say that so clearly because this is not an attitude issue on my part, right? Yeah. Like this is not a thing that I can spiritualize and work out and you know, do a study on self-esteem or something and come out ready to tap. This is a structural barrier that the world is placing in my way. And so the responsibility is on people of privilege, people who are able to address that barrier. I can only yeah. go so far. So there is that component to it. But on the other end, it's incredible to me how the more I have opened up inside of my pain in a present tense sort of context, not in telling what we usually see as sort of testimony stories of, you know, way back in the day I did drugs, but then Jesus. So now I'm allowed to talk about the drugs because it was far enough back in my past. I think we all know what I'm talking about. Learning how to sort of model present tense testimonies and be very vulnerably out there about present tense struggle with a kind of radical candor that I'm well aware may not just be me being awesomely spiritually mature. It may be me lacking any kind of healthy boundaries, but um, this is what we're trying out right now. I have to say it's it's been a rewarding experience in ways I didn't expect because the main sort of Thing that we could learn as white evangelicals from the way the Jewish faith handles grief mm. is that we are so often in things that are painful, isolated, right? Yeah. We have these feelings of nobody could possibly understand what I'm going through right now. It is so unique to me. Whereas Jewish culture, I wrote in the book about how there's a traditional blessing that you say when you're at the house of somebody who's mourning And it essentially translates to, may God comfort you among all the other uh, mourners in Zion. And the first time you read that, coming from a white evangelical background, you're like, well, that's offensive. Right. Like, it's about me. Okay, we know you're sad, but think about all those other people, okay? But that feels so invalidating. We're so used to hearing, like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly understand what you're going through. And although that sounds right— it actually really is a way of further othering and isolating that Mm -hmm. person sitting across from you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we should all convert and be Jewish. And I'm certainly not saying we should just rush over and appropriate all of their (laughs) systems and call them our own. What I am saying is there's something there that we could really learn from. The reason that greeting, that blessing is not Seen as offensive or felt as offensive for a Jewish person who's receiving it is because it's accompanied by a whole other host of other rules and systems for how to grieve that have made it very clear that that community has been pointed so well to the person who's grieving. You will not be able to miss them yeah. from the way they dress to the actions that they're doing. Everything about them says, I am a person who's grieving which says in that culture, I am a person that's your responsibility. Mm. And so we can, in that context, push people outside of themselves and push them to think about the ways their grief can connect them or their ways their grief can become a springboard to a better calling because we first laid that groundwork of having the rest of the community come alongside and say, we belong to you and you belong to us. And how can we walk with you in grief? So it's hard because on the one hand, I'd love to say that in doing all this work, I've found, you know, connection and belonging inside of pain and grief. But the reality is without that first step, without having the rest of society pick up on its sort of role of how we care for those who are suffering, there's only so much I can do on my end.
0: Right. And do you feel like it's a hard, it's a slippery slope? But is that what it comes down to? Why you have gotten a closer closer relationship with the Lord because you've realized that He's the only one there, really that you that is consistent and that's unchanging in the middle of all this? That's a very interesting question. I'm thinking for a minute. Yeah. Um,
1: I think there's some truth in that. That yeah. No matter how much other people fail us. I only found him more intimately and more near to me in suffering than in any other experience, and so there is a truth to you know. I talked in the book a little bit, and I don't want to go too far because these are heavy, complex concepts about They're so
0: heavy. Paul oh.
1: and Peter writing about this idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, right? Like yes. so, there is a very unique bond that happens in your faith when you tap into that idea and understand how to view the sufferings that you're experiencing as something that's directly connecting to you to the sufferings that Jesus experienced. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, recognizing that he chose to come here and have those experiences and to suffer those things because he knew it would equip him to meet mm-hmm. you in those places, right? That's powerful, yeah. But I don't want that to sort of become a Christianized way of letting ourselves off the hook, if you will, right? Like, oh, the goal here is that you learn how to meet Jesus in those places. No, that's part of it. But we absolutely need to start having difficult conversations about what we owe our neighbors, about the way that prosperity gospel theology has sort of stunted our ability to be to show empathy yeah. or to really care for the hurting around us in meaningful ways. And, and I just want to be very careful that we don't turn it into like, I think that's so great that, you know, you get closer to Jesus because you right. have no choice because everyone else abandoned you. So that's good because like, Jesus, like, right. it's not what the kingdom of God was designed to look like. That's not, you know, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not enough to say, well, you're going to have that great relationship with Jesus. And then one day in heaven, this is all going to be fixed. We were taught by Jesus to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And I think we're meant to do more than pray. I think we're meant to actively seek out ways to make that justice happen for the people around us. And that means people that are hurting.
0: Yes, that's so good, and you're doing such a good job, Stephanie, because these are such complicated issues and questions, and I feel like we could spend a whole hour talking about each one that I'm asking you, and that's why I just so encourage people to get the book where you go into the details and you admit that there is tension in these areas. There are not easy black and white answers, but I think that is why your book spoke so much to me, because it's not tying it all up in a pretty bow, and... Uh The running joke is that there is something in this book for everyone to hate. Like, (laughs)
1: um, if you love the first, uh, like, eight chapters, you will probably hate the last one. (laughs) And, like, there's a little (sighs) bit for everybody. Like, I... I didn't let anyone off the hook on this one. There are I don't no feel easy answers. I wrapped nothing up in a bow. No, you
0: did not. And I don't feel like, I can't say I hated anything. I can say there oh, were definitely wonderful. things that really challenged me and really making me look at some of my set beliefs versus where I'm at now, where you're at. So, But I think that's what we need in this white evangelical culture right now more than anything. And I think it's been so clear to me how, privileged I am when you don't take a closer look and wrestle with these things. Mm -hmm. And now that all this has hit me squarely in the face, everything I thought I knew and believed is tumbling down. Mm -hmm. And I hate that I had to get there to start wrestling with these things, but but I am, and that's where I'm at, and that's why it spoke to me so much. I know we've so gone over time, but can we talk about one last thing before we wrap up? Absolutely. Because I know it's such an an important part of your story and your book. It's about joy, and I Mm -hmm. I will say that's something that I've wrestled with, and I've always wrestled with that a little bit, the difference between joy and happiness, but now being in a period of immense grief and immense uncertainty about my health, Mm I'm really struggling with that one. And I know what I've read before, but I want you to talk about that a little bit. Because one of the things you say for you, pain has never existed on a spectrum opposite of joy. Hmm. So in these final minutes, can you talk about talk about that? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of
1: us grew up hearing... Um, those passages from Ecclesiastes about how there was a time for every season under heaven. Right. And so you'll hear these sort of opposites in these sentences, you know, time for mourning, a time for uh, a time for dancing and like everything's sort of portrayed as, as opposites, if you will. And because we're human and humans really love to put things into clear hierarchies. We like Mm -hmm. what's better, what's worse, what's yes, what's no. Reading opposites, we have a tendency to assume that those are compartmentalized from each other, that joy is this section of time and mourning is this section of time. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest breakthroughs for me in learning to live as a person who will always have chronic pain and disability, okay, that's not going to be a season I can compartmentalize where I can wait for the non-pain season with the dancing on the other side, uh, which left me wondering, so that is it? Like, I'm just stuck in the morning season then forever? Right. Or right. what does this verse mean? Or do I just throw this verse out? Which didn't really work for me. I'm, I'm kind of a Bible person. Yes. So it was really powerful for me to really dig in and explore that text and realize there is absolutely nothing anywhere that says that these are disconnected, compartmentalized seasons that never overlap. Sure, we're talking about a lot of opposites. And yes, there is a time to, for, to, to, to mourn and there is a time to dance. And sometimes the time to mourn and the time to dance overlap. Yeah. Life isn't going to be this compartmentalized system where when we're in hard things, we're looking forward to our joy returning. Which means the good news in that, on the flip side, is life is not a compartmentalized system in which our joy is removed because hard things have happened. It goes both ways here. Yeah. And I felt like I had to learn how to see joy and pain as sort of intertwined figures in a dance where you really can't clearly unravel where one starts and one ends. Because there are so many times in human life where we are asked to carry both and instead of either or. And part of the reason I think people are losing connection to their joy is that they're expecting that dichotomy. They're so focused on, I need to get to the end of my pain so that the joy can come back. And they're missing the joy that's available to them in the meantime
0: yeah So when like James says, "Count it all joy when you meet trials, how do you how do you make sense of that? How do you explain that?: So that verse is extra tricky
1: because what I don't want and I've heard it preached and it is so unhelpful and downright harmful, is that I'll be like brutally blunt and say, You are never going to hear me say, I am so." glad God killed seven of my babies. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not a sentence that I will ever be comfortable saying. And I don't think I'm being asked to. I don't serve yeah. that God. Yeah. And I think some people see that verse in shames. And if you don't have a healthy and complex theology of suffering, that's what you think it's asking you to do. Right. right. In reality, a lot of the joy that's come for me in trials – isn't joy as in I'm happy this happened. It isn't joy that says, I'm so grateful there's a reason for all of this. It makes perfect sense. Here's what it is. A lot of the joy, and this is going to sound very backwards for a lot of people, so I'm going to suggest you read this chapter of the book if you can get your hands on it because it took me an entire chapter to explain what I mean. You're right. Yes. A lot of it, Is in coming to a place where you recognize that if I let go and accept that pain is a thing that happens, it's the default state. It's going to happen to everybody, no matter how well you behave, no matter how many rules of God you follow, no matter how faithful you are or how hard you work. You are not going to escape this life without experiencing pain and suffering at some point. And that sounds like a downer place to start if I'm trying to explain joy. But here's the thing. With accepting that fact comes an enormous amount of freedom, a release from shame, a release from blame, a release Mm -hmm. from guilt. Because you discover that these things that have happened to me, it's not because I sinned. It's not because I didn't have enough faith. It's not maybe we heard God wrong and we shouldn't have moved to Oregon because this obviously isn't his will if everything's going wrong. You get to release all of that and find complete contentment and release in knowing that God's got you and you are not the boss of God's plan. It sounds like a smack in the face, but the thing that gave me the most joy back in life was a friend who looked me straight in the face when I was freaking out about having, did did I step outside of God's will? Am I bringing this? And who said, Stephanie, you are not that powerful. If you really think that you can derail the plans and the will of God, you got a pride problem. And I thought, that's offensive. And then I sat with it and went, wait a minute. yeah, That's the most freeing thing I have ever been told because if it's not my job to make sure God's plan goes off without a hitch and that I don't wreck it, it also means that when this stuff happens, it's not my fault.
0: You verbalizing all that just – Oh, that just really spoke powerfully to me, Stephanie. Like it just clicked when you said that is knowing those fiery trials, knowing those things are coming, gives us this freedom to release it, to release the shame and the guilt and all the and, what ifs. And the best part is that, is that just get oh. that. If you can get that, then
1: you get to go to all these other chapters, right? Then you get yeah. to go to the sort of the bonus content of surprise. Now you can also see. Suffering can make you more like Jesus. Suffering can make you more connected to Jesus. Suffering can help you serve your community better. But that wasn't the main point, right? And that's the most important thing I can say so that this doesn't get misconstrued. It's never God made those things happen to you so that you could go be a pastor or so that you could have the spiritual breakthrough or no, like... When you get to that place where you've accepted that this isn't on you to control, that all of your, your wholeness is found entirely in Christ, and that you are not the boss of what happens in your life, and that good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people, once you've accepted that, then, man, there is a whole host of bonus content that you can find inside your suffering. And that doesn't make the suffering good. That doesn't mean God wanted those things to happen to you. It means he can redeem the things that were meant for our harm and transform them into amazingly powerful tools for not just our good, but for the good of the
0: kingdom and the people around us. Amen. Stephanie, you're speaking so much truth into me. And I just, I cannot thank you enough. And I've taken a ton of your time. And I just, uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate it. Because I know it's not easy for you to do these interviews. You're not always feeling up for them. And I just appreciate so much you speaking so vulnerably to me.
1: Well, It's been a joy to be here. Um, You're not wrong. My brain is freaking out because I I have something called aphasia. So it's difficult for me to access my language at times. So I hope I didn't say anything
0: unintentionally offensive. You did not, Stephanie. You've been amazing. And again, your book is called View from Rock Bottom. Like you said, it's been out for six months, and we will put links on where to find that. Tell me where we can find you you and I'll make sure to link that up on your notes on the podcast. The best
1: jumping off point for me is my website because that'll take you to all my social media my speaking, okay. my Patreon, anything else and that is Stephanie Tate Tate is T-A-I-T
0: okay. StephanieTateWrites.com Okay, we will link all of that up and I like I said, your book, it's it's gotten me through this month and I just can't thank you enough Stephanie That means the world's to me here Thanks for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I hope Stephanie's wisdom and experience have spoken to you about finding joy and intimacy with God, even in the midst of suffering. As always, the links to where to find Stephanie and purchase her book are in the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. I also want to extend a thank you to all of you who have sent me notes and prayers and encouragement over the past couple months. They have been everything to me. And now I see just how much we need community, especially in the midst of pain and suffering.